Sex, Lies, and Murder comes from Reels, the channel that brings you the breakout hit series on Patrol Live. Reels fuels your law enforcement and real crime obsessions with originals like Jeffrey Dahmer, Killer Cannibal. It's not enough to dismember somebody. He wants more. And Ted Bundy, Serial Monster. He leaves in really close, and then very quietly he says... I'm going to kill you. Go to Reels.com now to find Reels on cable, satellite, and all your favorite streaming services. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com. And now, sex, lies, and murder. When we look at sex, lies, and murder, this case epitomizes those three terms. Michael was quite the yoga instructor. He was well-known and had quite a following. He was just a very carefree, very nice man who was also a little bit flirtatious with the women. There's chemistry there in the room, beyond the yoga. He felt guilty about the way he treated her that night when they had sex. There are so many volatile things that could happen within a love triangle. There's a lot of secrets happening here, and there's a lot of lying going on. It just doesn't add up. But the case is still unraveling. And he produces this tape. And boy, does it shock everybody. It shows that side of her. It shows a side of her that can what? Commit murder. Tucson is the second largest city in the state of Arizona. It's located in the southern part of the state, less than 70 miles from the Mexican border. Because of the close proximity to Mexico, the area has a reputation for illegal immigrants, drugs, and crime. I cover the crime beat. So, yes, there is uh, quite a bit of crime in Tucson. I don't want to give Tucson a bad name or anything, but it's like any other large city that has its problems. There's certain areas in Tucson that you don't want to go out at night, as you would in L.A. or Chicago. So it's just a matter of be aware of your surroundings. Michael Dohakis was 45 years old. He was a yoga instructor. He was a very nice man. He was divorced. He was the father of two girls. Uh, his daughters absolutely adored him. So I look at Michael, I see this charming guy, really calm. He's a yoga instructor and people like him. They gravitate towards the guy. He has this kind of like, I don't know if it's spirituality, but it's just this serenity about him. And people really are attracted to that. He was just a very carefree, very nice man who was also a little bit flirtatious with the women. Tucson is a growing community, so we are a mixture of a lot of people here. Most of the people are from somewhere else that end up in Tucson, either because of the University of Arizona or because they're retired or because their job brings them here. Amber Trudell was an accountant. She was living in Tucson and was a uh, student of Michael Dohakis. 
Amber decides to put herself out there, join a yoga class, meet new people. First person she meets is Michael. And she starts to take classes with a bunch of people. She's kind of like laid back, a little bit bookish, not too outgoing, pretty girl, but kind of a clock in and clock out life. You know, she doesn't bother anybody. She had somewhat of a troubled past growing up in Connecticut and, you know, moving to Arizona. She was sexually abused by her biological father, and uh, she had younger siblings, and she took the abuse to save her, her younger siblings. And she had problems with alcohol, but uh, well-liked amongst her co-workers. The alcohol did change her, and when she drank too much, she wanted to argue. Then soon, she wants private classes. So her and Michael begin to have private yoga classes together, which sparks begin to fly. They started seeing each other, and they became romantically involved. It was a scenario like Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze in Dirty Dancing. I mean, private lessons, bodies touching, and the romance just kind of took off from there. Amber has been saving up this love her whole life, if you will. And when she falls for Michael, it's like she wants it all. It was a pretty steamy relationship between Amber and Michael. It was this whirlwind romance wrapped up in yoga, you know, very eat, pray, love. But we've got Amber in her late 20s, and we've got Michael in his mid-40s. So there's quite an age gap in between the two. Michael was having fun at the time in his life, so he didn't care. I think he liked her, but I don't think that he was ready to marry her. And she was really pushing hard to, to marry him. And he just didn't want that. And I think that uh, some of the friends saw that she was becoming very pushy and wanted more out of the relationship than he did. She was um, very possessive. And she was very jealous. You know, this poses a problem for Michael. It's really not something he wants. But Amber is just totally, totally in love with this guy. Can't get enough of him. It was September 26, 2003. And it was unusually warm that day. We got the call Friday morning because... His neighbor walked by at 6 in the morning and saw somebody laying inside of the porch area. We head over there, and neighbors were coming up of their homes wanting to find out what happened. The area where this occurred has a high crime rate. There's a lot of drug activity going on, a lot of burglaries. I remember it was very high in property crimes. The neighbors thought it was a burglary because they had been going through a rash of burglaries in that area. We get to the crime scene. We go into the front yard area. We see shoe prints. We see a big footprint on the porch, kind of muddy footprint. It rained around that time, so the soil was somewhat damp. And on the side of the yard, we found the, uh, the guitars stacked up, a violin. Go into the house, you see broken glass in the kitchen. The, it looks like someone had thrown a glass a small drinking glass out the window, kitchen window, and that was laying in the front yard. 
inside the kitchen area. It looks like the computer has been pushed off the table or the printer. And on the side door of the kitchen, it looks like there's a microphone, an amp, and more musical instruments stacked up there. We got there shortly after the police did, and it was a, a, a small porch. There was a hedge right next to the house. His door is slightly ajar. It's, if you look from the street, his porch, it's kind of dark back in there. It's offset the street, so you would never know unless you really look closely that there was a body there. You know, a series of events occurs, and Michael doesn't show up to teach his yoga class. And to his students, that was just exceedingly odd. This is a guy who's punctual about that yoga class. And for him not to be there and not call is odd. That's number one. Number two, where Michael lives, there's a porch there. And one of the neighbors reports a body maybe on that porch, a body that's not moving. So those two events come together, and sure enough, Michael, the yoga instructor, has been murdered. Tucson. You know, if you like grass, Tucson's not the place for you because it's sand and cactuses and rocky. And the thing about Tucson is when the sun's out, it feels like it's right in front of your face. It feels hot. Michael was a machinist by trade. He was divorced, had a large family. He had a machine shop attached to his home, and um, he was a musician. Had several musical instruments in one of the bedrooms, and he uh, was a yoga instructor. He recently had gotten into yoga, maybe a few years before. And he had quite a following. He was, he was quite a good yoga instructor. He was highly praised by a lot of his colleagues. He was supposed to be teaching this class. He never showed up. Students became concerned because that just wasn't like him. He's on the porch, he's face up, and he's got a large bullet hole to the forehead. The police had not released his name, but the, the whole neighborhood knew who he was. And the neighbors were telling me that it was Michael Dohakis, and he was a very nice man. So if I'm an investigator, several things come to mind because there are parts of Tucson that not too many people want to walk through. There's some really hard parts of Tucson. What strikes me is that this could be a number of things, really. I mean, it could be a drive-by shooting. Maybe someone mistook Michael for someone they wanted to hit. This could be a burglary gone bad, a home invasion. This looks a lot like a burglary that turned into a murder. That's what it looks like. Based on the fact that the, his instruments were out in the front yard and, and his bag was left there, possibly they got scared and ran off after the shooting. That's where our first focus was. Michael foiled a burglary and was shot and killed over that. We didn't have any suspect information other than what we were seeing at the crime scene. Investigators latch on to these two guys that live in the neighborhood. And they don't live in like a Victorian or a nice house. They live in a crack house. These guys are drug addicts. They've been involved in all sorts of smashing grabs, break-ins. After the murder, within the next day or two, through computer checks, I found burglars who lived in the area, 
And it just so happened that one of the burglars had been arrested over the weekend, and he was in jail. I went out to interview him, and he had been involved in a burglary in the past where guitars were taken. So at that point, I felt he was a prime suspect. When I went to interview him, he was somewhat evasive with me. And uh, I did a search warrant on his apartment. I found blood on shoes in his apartment. The shoes found during the search of the suspect's residence were collected and taken into evidence. They then went through forensic testing to determine if the blood on the shoes came from Michael DeHakis. Test results definitively showed that the blood was not a match. You know, in fact, those shoes were nowhere near Michael or that house. So what does this tell you? It tells you that, you know, these guys are bad guys and they've done some bad things, but they haven't done this bad thing. So they were back to square one. Really? So we found a witness across the street who we tried to interview the day of the murder. He said, oh, yeah, I know Michael was there on Friday because I kept hearing his compressor go on and off like he was on his machinery. And uh, I said, well, did you see him? And he said, no, we didn't see him. My wife and I didn't see Michael, but we knew he was there. His car was there and his compressor kept going on and off. So we found out that the compressor had an automatic startup switch that when the, the pressure went down, it automatically kicked on. So that's what the neighbor was hearing. After police found that there was no connection with the people who were involved in drugs and Michael Dohakis, that there was no connection at all, they started digging into other things. Some of the students that were in his yoga class, neighbors, ex-wife, girlfriends, and um, they came up with the name of Amber Trudell. You have the victim. And the first circle around the victim, if you're an investigator, is everybody he or she knows. And in this case, they're directed right to Amber. Because Amber is what? His girlfriend. You got to bring her in or you got to go question her. I had Amber's name and, and Michael's phone. So, you know, he had his list of his, his contacts. And that's how I found Amber. She was the number one person on his contact list. So after Michael had died, I'd gone through the whole list and called everybody because I wasn't getting much as far as witnesses or his friends coming forward. And I had already left a message on Amber's phone when I was calling Michael's contacts after the murder. So when they started looking into Amber Trudell, they found out that she was married. So you have this married woman who's having an affair with her yoga instructor. And apparently, nobody knew that she was even married. So, what is going on with Amber? How could she possibly live two lives? So, when they learned that Amber Trudell um, was having an affair with Michael, they thought, okay, we've got a love triangle going here. Amber's employer called me on Tuesday after the murder, that Amber had not come back to work or reported to work. They immediately looked at Amber's husband as a possible suspect. Did the husband find out and kill this guy to get rid of his love rival? Michael can be very flirtatious. 
you know, he's 45. He's a divorcee. Uh, he's not really looking to get married again. He's kind of playing the field, having a good time, enjoying his life. You know, he's a single guy now, enjoying his life. He was quite the yoga instructor, though. He, he was well-known and had a, quite a following, and a lot of people wanted to take his courses. It was uh, early Friday morning. I think we got called at 6 a.m., and uh, a neighbor had found the body of the victim on his porch, his front porch. So police were called. We got there. And a group of maybe seven homicide detectives arrived. We were briefed by the uh, responding officers and given the witness information, and we started our investigation. It looked like a burglary. It looked like Michael had come home and foiled a burglary and was shot and killed on his porch. Because the location of this house was in a, in a high crime rate area where there were a lot of burglaries and a lot of drug activity, um, police initially thought that it was a burglary and that it had been some drug addicts that lived in the area, that they were involved in this somehow, that it, it, it tied in. There's always this nexus with property crimes and drugs, and they thought this was what it was. They pinpointed two people who were known drug users that lived not far from where the Hakas lived, and, and they thought that maybe these people were responsible for it. And you know what? Michael seems like this charismatic, charming guy, but, you know, everybody has enemies. Police get a warrant, and they search the homes of these local neighborhood drug addicts, and what do they find? Blood-covered shoes. They didn't come back as uh, having to do with anything with the victim. When the body was initially found, it, detectives thought that maybe he had been killed that morning or the night before. It was on Tuesday morning that I got the call from Amber's employer telling me about Amber. She was going out with that yoga instructor that was killed last week because it made the news. What's interesting about Amber as investigators look into her life is that she may have come across as this librarian type. The accountant, the poor me, quiet, but she's got another side to her. And that side they discover is that she likes to drink. And she's not the quiet girl who is shy sitting in the corner. She's very outgoing and she likes to party and she likes to do things that the other Amber, the yoga Amber, wouldn't do. Whenever you have two sides, to somebody's character. When people start describing one person and other people describe another, you gotta look further into that because that means one thing. They're hiding something. The one thing that pops up that would probably surprise everyone in Michael's circle, especially the yoga circle, is that Amber is married. And I mean, wow, like now you've got a love triangle. She was married to Justin Goodwins. I found out through, uh, through Amber's employer who Justin was. Found out a little bit about him. His parents lived in uh, northern Arizona, mom and, and stepfather. Stepfather was a retired Connecticut police officer. Justin worked at a local bagel shop. He worked the early morning shift and made bagels. There's so many 
violent things that could happen within a love triangle. So you got to dig deeper. You got to look inside this thing and really take a look at each side of that triangle and see what it offers. When Amber did not report to work on Monday, on the way home from work, her employer went by Amber's house. They were somewhat friends. and She had worked with uh, this woman for quite a while. So she went by Amber's home, didn't see, looked all dark, didn't see any cars in the driveway. And when she called me on Tuesday, she informed me of that. And I told her, I said, keep an eye on that. And I said, I'll make my own checks. But, you know, since you live in the area, drive by and, and just see if they, they show up. And it so happened on Wednesday morning, I believe, that they did show up. The employer called me and said they're here and they're loading up a, a U-Haul truck. So that's when the police went out there, detained Justin. Amber was not there. Police began exploring the possibility that something had also happened to Amber Trudell. There was a history of abuse in her marriage and police were unable to locate her. Her husband, Justin Goodwins, also carried a weapon. In fact, he was carrying a gun at the time he was detained by police. Justin came into the police station, and that's when we started interviewing Justin. Justin was evasive. He said he hadn't seen Amber in a while. And she came home upset last week, and she left. She got in her pickup truck and left. So we put an attempt to locate out on Amber's truck. Justin had a mouthful to say about his, his wife, you know, about her troubled past, her cheating. She had had an affair before, before Michael with another individual who lived in Colorado. Justin says he was totally unaware of this affair. This is a few days after we've interviewed her, and uh, I, I tried to locate her. I contacted Justin. Justin said she left. She left town. She got in her truck and left town. Where did she go? I don't know. I, you know, Justin had already lied to me once. So he said, I just don't know where she, she was upset and she left. And I said, Justin, you're not telling me everything. I know you know more about this and you could be involved too. You're still not clear on this. If Justin found out Amber was having another affair, that might have just been the straw that pushed him over the edge. Where is she? Where is Amber? Did Justin kill them both? I didn't feel he was truthful with me, and the, the entire time I, I was interviewing him, his phone was ringing off the hook. One of the other detectives had it in, in his possession. We didn't allow Justin to go in the interview room with a phone, and the phone kept ringing and would, you know, drop calls, and they were to a, a phone number to the Extended Stay America here in Tucson. What is actually going on? There's a lot of secrets happening here, and there's a lot of lying going on, and they're going to get to the bottom of it. Police seize Justin's phone, and they find a call from a local motel to Justin. And bingo, that's where Amber was. She was at the hotel, and we interviewed her there at first, and very evasive. We brought her back to the police station. We interviewed her for hours, and we had to let her go. We didn't have anything. We got as much information as we could, but she had an alibi. They were in Sholo the whole weekend, and they left Thursday morning. They left for Sholo. 
Justin's parents resided in Sholo, a city four hours northeast of Tucson, Arizona. Police needed to confirm if both Justin and Amber were out of town at the time of Michael Dohaquez's murder in order to rule them out as suspects. We found Michael on Friday morning, and they were gone on Thursday. I called the parents in Sholo, and they verified, yeah, they got here Thursday afternoon. And Amber stayed in her room the whole weekend and drank. She was drunk the whole weekend, basically. So they had an alibi, so I had to let Amber go and Justin go that night. What's really concerning for detectives is that, yes, Amber was with Justin and the parents at some point far away from the crime scene. But at another point, she ends up in a hotel in Tucson not long after that. So they're scratching their heads. What's going on here? Why is she in a hotel? When we found Eli, his best friend, Eli came back in town and said, no, Wednesday night I was with Michael and Amber at a local bar. They were both intoxicated and they had been arguing at one point and they went home together to Michael's house on Wednesday night. A couple of Michael's friends had told me that. She was too young for Michael, very young, immature, not Michael's type. Michael was with people that were very outgoing, personable, loving, and funny. Amber was quiet. She was kind of reserved to herself. Eli had a conversation with with Amber that night. They went to a a sandwich shop first, had some drinks, had some food, and they were arguing. And Michael said, I've had enough. He got up to leave, and Amber went after him. And Eli stopped Amber there in the parking lot and said, you know what, you just... Just let him be. Well, why doesn't he love me? You know, because you're married, Eli told her. You're married. You know, once you find out Amber's living a double life, game on. You know something else is up. You know she has a secret beyond a double life. Amber Trudell carries a gun. Police ask her to please hand it over to them. She says she doesn't know where it is. And has no idea where it is. Get your crime anytime with the TV series Behind This Podcast. How does your life go from being a housewife to participating in a murder? You can stream Sex, Lies, and Murder with no fee and no subscription on Tubi and on Pluto right now. You know you want to. This is Beyond Dysfunctional. On Patrol Live aired what may end up being the most shocking moment of the year, says Entertainment Weekly. Responded to a report of a toddler waving a firearm. That's absolutely tough to see. And it's making headlines across the country. This kid could have hurt himself or hurt a lot of other people. Could have been a horrific, horrific situation. Don't miss a minute because anything can happen. On Patrol Live every Friday and Saturday night, only on Reels. For a homicide detective, when you get a case that starts out to be somewhat of a whodunit and you have to work investigative leads to get from point A to point B, this this thing flowed. Amber Trudell had been carrying on this very intense love affair with her yoga instructor, Michael. Little did everyone know Amber was actually married. So when Michael is found shot to death on his front porch and the police rule out local burglars, they begin to suspect Amber's husband, Justin. Investigators learn that 
Oh, yeah, we were at my parents' house that night. Who's we? Amber and I. Okay, so Amber and Justin are really, really far away from this crime scene at the time that Michael is murdered. As Michael's people start coming into the picture and start describing the relationship between Amber and Michael, we see another different side. We see, you know, someone who wasn't really well liked. The yoga people, Michael's circle of friends did not like Amber. I mean, here she was going around saying how much in love she was with him and she wanted to marry him, yet she's already married. Michael knew she was married. It was Justin, Amber's husband, who didn't know about the affair. She was prepared to leave her husband for Michael, according to Eli. Michael's close friend Eli was interviewed by the police, and he advised them that he had been with both Amber and Michael the Wednesday night before the murder. He also informed the police that the two had been drinking heavily and that they had engaged in a heated dispute. They got back together in the parking lot there and discussed some things, and they said, we're going to go to another bar. So then they went to another bar. Eli went along for a couple of drinks, and uh, he said that they were fine when he left the bar. And... Uh, just assumed that they would leave together, which they did. I said, I know you have a gun. Where is your gun? And I don't have it. I don't know. I don't know what I did with it. I, I don't have it. So she was being very evasive with us. And it just, you know, at one point it got kind of heated there. And I said, you know, we needed to calm down. I think Amber felt that we were going to arrest her that night. It was very difficult to, to let her go that night because I knew she, she was the suspect. Or Justin. Here we have a female carrying around a gun, and yet she doesn't know where it is. Anybody who carries a gun knows where that gun is every single minute of every single day. Whether it's on their hip, in their boot, or in a safe. Everyone, that is, except Amber. Justin's stepfather uh, in Sholo, Arizona, which is about four hours north of Tucson. Uh, he called us a few days after that Wednesday, called me to, to let me know that, uh, that he found a gun. And I said, what do you mean you found a gun? He said, well, that time that Amber was here that for the weekend prior, she'd been drinking a lot and she took walks out in the backyard. And I would see her, which was unusual because Amber and Justin had visited in Sholo before. And he said it was kind of unusual. I saw her in a, in a corner of my property that I'd never seen her before. So he said, I went out to investigate, retired police officer. And he, uh, he saw a stack of rocks in an area that he knows his property, he knows his land. And so he just started pulling rocks away. And sure enough, he found the gun. It was a revolver and that uh, it had some blood on it. So he called me right away. We sent detectives out there to secure the gun. And so they do ballistics on that gun. Sure enough, it's a match. That gun killed Michael. That gun that Amber owned killed Michael. The question becomes, who was behind that trigger? When the body was initially found, detectives thought that maybe he had been killed that morning or the night before. But when the medical examiner's office looked at the body, they said that he'd been dead longer than that. Rigor mortis is a really tricky thing. The body can go in and out of that different stages, depending on temperature, lots of different things. So 
you know, ultimately, though, if you're an investigator, you're going to find everything out. It's all going to come out because you're not going to stop digging. You're not going to stop looking. The doctor said, you know what? He had larva in his eyes. He shouldn't have larva in his eyes. That's, that's something that happens later. You know, but he was warm to the touch when we got there. And, you know, you're talking September here. It's still 100 degrees out, and he's warm. It's in the morning, so we thought we had a fresh victim. Investigators begin to reevaluate the timeline of when this murder occurred with the new information from the medical examiner. They originally thought that Michael was murdered either Thursday night or Friday morning, but with this new information, they determined that it was either Wednesday night or Thursday morning. Well, Amber and Justin didn't leave for show low until Thursday morning, so they were in town when the murders occurred. So by finding out from the medical examiner's office that um, Michael had been killed longer than they originally thought, then both Justin and Amber really didn't have much of an alibi. While Tucson police are investigating the case here, Amber disappears. So I put in an attempt to locate out on Amber, her truck, and I spoke to Amber's relatives in Connecticut. Her brother didn't know anything about this, didn't know where she was at. She had a grandmother that lived in upstate New York, and I spoke to the grandmother and an uncle who lived with the grandmother there in New York, and they had some things to say about Amber's past and her troubled past growing up as a child there in Connecticut. So I'd given the information to the local marshal's office here in Tucson, and a week or so after the, she left is when I got the call that she had been picked up. Within a week of the murder, Amber Trudell had fled to New York State without her husband. Their marriage was all but over. On October 23, 2003, Amber was arrested in Ogdensburg, New York, and charged with the first-degree murder of Michael Duhakis. So uh, I went out there and spoke to her, and she thought about it, and she wanted to tell me, but she said I better not say anything. So she did not give me a statement. Next time I saw her was when we went to trial. I just want to be with you. You gotta go. No, I want to be with you. Amber's side of the story was that Michael had gotten very violent with her, that he punched her in the face, he tried to strangle her, and he also kicked her. She testified, and she seemed like the same old Amber I had in the interview room. She was, you know, somewhat defensive. Defensive with the prosecution, of course. You know, she gave the defense a testimony that she and Michael had, had been fighting, that they had some wild sex that night, and that uh, he abused her, and she was really hurt by that, and that he was so depressed that he wanted to end his life. No, no, Michael. She claims it was actually his hand on the gun when it went off, that... Michael was so distraught over everything he had done to her. Here's this caring, loving, charismatic, laid-back yoga teacher. He was going to kill himself, and that's what happened. The way she described him handling the revolver to shoot himself by, with both hands, putting the revolver to his forehead and pulling the trigger didn't match up. I 
just want to be. The prosecution's case is pretty simple. I mean, Amber is putting pressure and pressure on Michael that she wants marriage and she wants it now. And that Michael pushed back and they started fighting. And he says, get out of my life. Go back to your husband. And she shot him. Michael shot in the middle of the forehead, just totally not consistent with how someone would kill himself with a handgun. You know, usually it's to the side or to the back or in the mouth, but this was to the forehead. It left a very distinctive starring pattern on his forehead from the contact wound to his forehead. When we got the gun in Sholo and brought it back to our crime lab and test fired it, the pattern left in the, uh, the soft cotton board that we test fire bullets through left the exact same pattern. I'd never seen anything like that in all my years in homicide. It was kind of remarkable. So we got a person who's living two lives, really, and she's telling a totally different version of what the prosecution puts out there. Their first trial ended in a hung jury. There was 11 jurors, uh, four conviction, and one held out. So now it starts all over again. You know, when you look at these types of murders, they're really one of the oldest stories in the book. Amber could not get what she wanted. I just want to be with you. So instead of walking away, she commits murder. So is a murderer going to walk away without justice taking its course? As investigators put pressure on Amber, really, from afar by all the forensics they're doing, the rigor mortis testing, the ballistics, what does she do? She runs. And she leaves her husband behind and takes off. And she makes it all the way to New York on the run before she's caught. So Amber's arrested and taken into custody in New York, and she's ultimately extradited back to Tucson, Arizona, to face the music, so to speak. I remember I covered the trials, and I remember it being very emotional, especially Michael Dohakis' family. Um, his daughters were there, and it was very sad because all these things came up. The first trial ended up ended in a, in a hung jury, and that was just devastating to the Dohakis' family and friends. Amber Trudell's second trial was scheduled to begin June 28, 2005, but before the proceedings began, her defense attorneys asked that the charges against her be dismissed outright. The motion to dismiss the murder charge was denied. So the second trial comes and uh, a new piece of evidence shows up. And it comes in the form of a really good witness, Amber's husband. He claims that he was sick and tired of Amber coming home, drunk out of her mind, being belligerent, being violent, screaming at him, that he actually recorded her so he could show her the behavior that she exhibited the next day. She pulled a gun on him at one point, so he just 
feared that she would kill him someday because she had a bad drinking problem. She couldn't control her, her alcohol. He had a cassette tape where he taped her uh, screaming at him, I'll kill you, I'll kill you. We had that tape and we submitted it for trial. I just want to be with you. I just want to be with you. Amber claimed that Michael was very abusive. Yet, friends and family who've known Michael for many years say quite the contrary. He was a very peaceful man. And, and I remember that first day when all this broke, neighbors were coming up and saying what a nice man he was. So this was just totally unlike him to be abusive to Amber, but yet to the whole world, he was very calm, very soothing, and a very nice man. There's not one person describing Michael as the person that Amber describes him to be. Not his ex-wife, not his kids, not his family, not his yoga students. The prosecution, like in the first trial, produces witness after witness that says Michael was just not this type of guy. There's nobody out there but Amber who is describing this guy as some violent sexual assaulter who would kill himself. It just doesn't add up. Amber changes her story again. She claims that she wanted to break it off because she wanted to try again with her husband and wanted to make her marriage a go. She claims that Michael got very upset about that because she was wanting to end it. And that's why he got violent. And that's why he shot himself. Basically, the prosecution says that if you flip Amber's story, it's correct. Because, in essence, it was Michael who wanted to break it off. And that's why she killed him. The sexual relations, the fact that he would not marry her. She was willing to leave Justin to marry Michael. And Michael was in no way any position to get married again. He was loving his life and... Uh, it was not going to get married again. Amber is telling the truth, except she's reversed the roles. That's all she's done. So when you look at her story, all she's done is just turn it around and point it on Michael when it's actually her. Part of me wanted to think that Justin went back with her and staged this to look like a burglary. I don't know if Amber was in the condition or position to do that because of, of just shooting him. In the second trial, it was a unanimous conviction. On July 15th, 2005, Amber Trudell was convicted of second-degree murder in the death of Michael DeHakis. During the sentencing hearing the following October, the court heard testimony from Michael's ex-wife, his daughters, his younger brother, and his mother. Amber's grandmother, 87-year-old, calls in and asks the judge to, to be lenient on her so that uh, she can become a productive citizen of society. You know, it's just a, another one of Amber's tricks. When the pressure's on, she runs to family in New York. When the pressure's on in trial and she's going to get a huge sentence, she runs to grandma. Help me out. For Amber, it's all about one person, herself. 
Amber Trudell was sentenced to 13 years in prison, and she was released in 2016. So Amber is now out on the street, free to do what she likes to do, and that's take care of herself. People that I worked with wanted to know why we didn't arrest Justin, and she didn't say anything negative about Justin. Justin would not admit his involvement other than the fact that when he started telling us the truth, that she did come home late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning. She had been drinking and very upset, crying. And um, so he said, you need to get out of town for a few days. And they decided to go to, to northern Arizona the very next morning. But later on, it was when we developed a theory that if Amber was that upset, and she was so drunk that she did this. She, she killed Michael. Was she still in the same frame of mind to stage the, the scene to look like a burglary? Justin says, I had nothing to do. I knew that she was cheating on me. I didn't know that she was seeing Michael. I know that she did have a yoga class, but at least that's what he said. And he, he said that to the very end. She served her sentence. She's out now. But Michael's dead. And we're talking about a guy that people loved. I mean, his kids, his yoga students, people couldn't find one bad thing to say about him. I mean, 13 years in prison, Amber got away with it. She's got family in Connecticut. She's close to her siblings. She's still got her whole life ahead of her. I just want to be with you. I remember one of family members telling me that um, she's being locked away, but nothing will ever replace Michael Dohakis. She took his life, and now she walks the planet he doesn't. That's not justice. Sex, lies, and murder comes from the real crime addicts at Reels Channel. To find shocking originals like this on your TV, plus on Patrol Live every Friday and Saturday night, go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com. Thanks for listening to Sex, Lies, and Murder.